Hello and welcome to In All of Us Command. I'm Kate. I'm Aaron. And we will be learning about national anthems. Each week we choose a new country at random, we learn a little bit about the country, and then we listen to their anthem. After listening, we rate the anthem based on several criteria and see how they all stack up in our humble opinion. Now, we don't want you to think that because of the title, we're huge fans of O Canada. In fact, we plan to dunk on it pretty much constantly throughout the show, and we don't expect it to finish highly in the rankings at all. You know, I was feeling real sorry for myself Mm -hmm. when I drew Palestine, and now you've gotten all these two-parters, like, in a row, so (laughs) I'm feeling a little less sorry (laughs) for myself. Uh, Yeah, this is, um, this is a monster. I imagine. Um, With which now, like, having done... you know what's in Italy is Rome. Yes. Yes. So, basically... I was saying this to you before we came on the air, but like every time I do one of these episodes, I get to this point where I like sit down and I open my laptop and I'm like, well, this is a train wreck and here we go. It's too late now. Um, So here's the thing about Italy. It's massive. It's a huge history. It goes back a long time. A lot of shit happened there. So I'm doing my best to cover the important parts and also probably skipping some of the important parts and trying to remind myself that this is mostly about the anthems and not as much about the history, even though the more we do this, the more it's about the history. So, okay, Italy, I want to say... It's yeah. just like, we we want to understand the context of the anthems. And for some of these countries, like, there's an enormous amount of context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those times. Yeah. Um, so Italy, I feel everybody kind of knows where that is. But in case you don't. Um, it's very recognizable. It's very recognizable. It is a long, skinny, boot-shaped country. Um, it shares borders with France, Switzerland, Austria, and Slovenia. And the like sort of skinny part of the land that like juts out is into the Tyrrhenian and Mediterranean seas. Yes. This is very brief on the geography because it's previously mentioned. Everyone kind of knows where we Italy all kind of know what Italy is. Okay, so people have been living on the Italian peninsula for a long, long time, dating back through the Paleolithic period. Um, we know that North Italy and South Italy, which have kind of their own identities, and I think a couple of times will come up as kind of separate mm-hmm. things, um, had contact with each other, um, and around 110 BCE. Um, People known as proto-Villanovans have been importing objects from other parts of Europe and sort of developing a society with a class structure in the area. Um, Around 900 to 500 BCE, the Villanovans um, are doing like a roaring trade in bronze and iron, really strengthening the local economy. We see the Italian economy throughout this section that we're going to discuss today really like ebb and come back and go and like as economies do, but it has a huge effect on the history and everything that goes down there. And then uh, 750 BCE sees the appearance of Greek colonies in Southern Italy. And some other major players here are the Etruscans who you've probably heard of, um, who lived in Italy before being expelled in 510 BCE. um, And the Carthaginians who came more out of like Northern Africa and Spain um, and were very important in our episode on Spain that you can listen to if you want to. The, 
Yeah, they've come up a number of times. Yes, yeah. and there's going to be a lot of interaction here with Spain. The two are quite close together. They're both quite right, powerful. of course. Um, and just like everybody wants a piece of Italy, we'll get into that anyway. Um, well, as like a united country, it's not that old. No, it's not. Um, yeah. This episode, this first one, will get us up to like Italian unification, right? essentially. And then we're going to cover everything post-unification afterwards. In part two. Yes. Okay. Um, so now, obviously, the Roman Empire happens, and it is hugely important. Um, the legend is that Rome was founded in 753 BCE by Romulus and Remus, who probably also everybody knows about. Um, it's a great story, though. Who It is. I love it that is. legend. It's a great story. Um, some of, like... The stories about the Greek and Roman gods, there's a reason people love them so much. They're so... They're so dramatic. They're so and dramatic messy. and like relatable yeah. in a ridiculously unrelatable way. Um, I loved this stuff when I was in school. I was all over it. Like um, everyone loves reading those old myths and laughing about how Zeus can't keep it in his pants yeah. for more than a breath. Like, yeah. 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 And I loved also, like we read parts of the Odyssey when I was in school. I love the Odyssey. Um, it's so exciting. What a great book what a great story um and the idea too that just like a guy would come around and recite the thing in your town square and you just had to like show up and listen to it that's fantastic to me i love that so much um anyway romulus and remus um are the twin sons we're getting caught up in greece we are we are we'll not get we'll not get it too confused (laughs) who are the twin sons of mars who is the the roman god of war okay um the twins are left to drown by a neighbor king um, and are rescued and raised by a wolf. They grew up to defeat the king who had tried to drown them. Romulus kills Remus and becomes the first king of Rome. Just a side note. Yes. I love how even though it's like a completely obscure, like archaic term, mm-hmm. all retellings of the story specify that it was a she-wolf, which is like... Okay. <laughs> it's just, it just makes me laugh because it's like no one would refer to a wolf that way. No one would call it a she-wolf, but so many retellings of the story are like they were rescued by a she-wolf, yeah, which that, I think is a weird that work is of the weird. legend. I think it's also maybe like a like a language thing because like when we talk about like a cow, for example, that is a, a female like version of that animal. We don't have that for wolves that no. like gendered. That's true. Split like mare and stallion or, yeah. or as I said, cow and bull or chicken and rooster. Anyway. Um, or at least if it exists, we don't say it. I, I was going to say like maybe bitch applies to all canines, maybe. but it also has like pretty nasty connotations. Yeah, so it doesn't get used in that context We're not going to get into that. We're here to talk about Italy. We and- keep getting <laughs> sidetracked. It's been a long day, folks. Um, okay, so Rome establishes non-hereditary succession. So new leaders are elected by the Senate and not just like the son of the guy before, which yeah. is like very advanced for their time, honestly, because yeah. mostly what we see is like, it's just you and then it's your son and then it's his son and then he doesn't have a son. So there's a huge crisis and a bunch of wars and then we figure something out. Anyway, so that's not going to happen specifically. Um, this like doesn't really need to be said, but it's also stupid not to say it. The Roman Empire, it grows big and it grows fast. Yeah. Um, they it expands own a, a huge portion of the huge, known world at that huge point. Huge portion. Yeah. Um, again, like huge for the time, too, that they could like get that far and yes. do it that effectively is very impressive. Um, 
they expand, as we have seen, obviously, like outside of the area that is modern day Italy. Um, then, as we also know, uh, the Roman Empire falls to Gothic tribes around 450 CE. Um, Italy, as we know it, though, does not exist and like will not exist really no, in the context of this episode. Yeah. Um, so you have to like keep this in mind as we go through this. When I say Italy, I mean the rough area that is modern day Italy. However, yes. like there was, to my understanding, mm-hmm. there was preference given to citizens of like Rome proper within yeah. the Roman Empire. So how, like, is that literally the city of Rome or does that extend further into modern day Italy? I don't know. I'm going to say it's probably just Rome. Okay. Because I know also that other cities like Milan and um, another one that's not in my brain right now um, have like their own identities. Sure. Very separate. But maybe that's later. I'm actually not 100% sure about that. Um, So it's really at this time like a mishmash of tribes and groups and kings. This includes notably the Lombards, Byzantines, and popes who start like gaining power and secular influence through the 600s and 700s. Yes. Um, If you want to learn about popes, we have an episode on Vatican City that you can listen to. Uh, They're going to come up. I'm not going to get too deep into the... The Pope weeds. Um, we, we talk about a number of them on the Vatican City episode. We do. We do. And plus, isn't there that other ranking yeah, podcast? Um, Listen to that if yeah, you want to know about the Pope. We'll teach you all about the, the Pope. Exactly. Um, so then our friend Charlemagne, who we have actually not talked about that much. We've talked about Charlemagne a little but bit. A little bit. Yeah. We he, talked about him in Switzerland, I think it was. Yeah. So he makes an appearance. Um, he comes knocking around seven, 774 yep. um, and sticks around until 814. Um, he didn't... Does How much of the land does he hold? I think a decent chunk. Yeah. Yeah. He was pretty effective. Yeah. Oh, um, for sure. But this is also to like... He had an unbelievable amount of resources behind him. Yes, yes. There is, though, like the map, the maps of Italy. You can look at this stuff online if you want to. It like, it changes. There are so many colors and so much going on. All these provinces that were not, do not have a long history of being united. Yes, yes. Um, So Charlemagne doesn't honestly change that much and mostly uses Byzantine and Lombard ideas of government like to do his own thing back in France. Honestly, like um, that's that's the way to build an effective empire of that size is to not change the way successful places are doing things yeah. and just have them pay you tribute. And at least Charlemagne is smart enough to know that, I guess. Yeah. Um, 843 sees the Treaty of not Berlin, but Verdun. Um, okay. So we get a, we get a different treaty. This a different time. treaty. This There's going to be a couple of them, <laughs> which divide up the Carolingian Empire between modern day Italy, France, and Germany, like more or less. Most Italian rulers at this time are French and German. They're kind of imported. Um, there's not a lot of like homegrown talent, as it were. Right. It's um, not like it's Lombard kings in the region. Yeah. 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 Um, Rome was technically homegrown talent. <laughs> Rome is technically part of the sort of Italian segment, but in practice is like already very independent um, and also important for military defense. We see attacks from North Africa on South Italy and they really like rise to the occasion of defending the South. Um, 
So now we're going to talk about a guy um, by the name of Berengar I. There is essentially a long succession of relatives, um, uncles and cousins, who sort of don't do great. They don't rule for very long. Um, They also don't live very long. And the last guy, sort of in this long uncle-cousin succession, was named Charles the Fat. And he was one of the last, like, non-Italians to rule the area. After this, we see a shift towards more local rulers. Yeah. Um, This is... yeah. Just a a side note. Maybe something you could look into for me Mm -hmm. uh, just in the break between now and part two. Yes. Is, like, how do these honorifics come to be? Like the fat and the wise and like all the those short, yeah. things. Yeah, that's a good question, actually. That'd be very interesting. Thank you. Remind me after? Yeah, I will. Okay. Um, this is when Berengar the first steps in. Uh, he's a Carolingian with sort of Italian roots. But since there's no official succession, his rule is challenged, I think, five times, I, I read. Um, he reigns a long time, though, from... 888 to 924 but is immensely unpopular and like doesn't get out much he's a bit of a a recluse because nobody wants to see him um then the hungarians invade in 899 and just like kept at it until about 950 and essentially destroy the whole army in the process yeah um there are some very determined people trying to take over this is it's proven a very effective base indeed indeed (laughs) it's clearly very desirable and then you get all the religion stuff like mixed in which is going to be complicated too. a big stretch of Um, land jutting out into the mediterranean you do which is unbelievable for trade yep you do get that (laughs) so everybody's kind of hungry for a piece and i think because it's already kind of cut up and divided they're like well it's an easy target yeah we just swoop in and like grab all this and they won't be able to defend themselves which is gonna kind of prove to be true absolutely um, divide and conquer is a strategy for a reason yes um berengar the first's reign is important because he kind of sucked um and <laughs> i'm gonna quote britannica here berengar the sucky they called him unadventurous <laughs> Um, he's not a good military strategist. And so after he dies, Italians really like start looking for leadership on the micro level. And they're looking for like a, a good guy who can make this happen for them. Um, local power is also very important because there are all these like little states and little kingdoms. Um, it's more about the micro kind of area. Right. Um, so power is divided between usually a count and a bishop, which makes it also really hard for like a higher level guy to do anything locally because he's bumping up against like a strong religious power and a strong like aristocrat who's just used to getting his way. Um, We will see this divide really like starts to grow between lower class citizens and the aristocracy kind of coming to a head around the time of the French Revolution, but that's not yet. We're getting there. It's not yet. Um, A lot of stuff came to a head around the time of the French Revolution. It did. It did. It was a really important time for Europe, generally. It was a a Um, big ol' upheaval. Big ol' upheaval, and we will see. It's actually very interesting in Italy how it all kind of plays out. Um, In addition to this, there had been 
a lot of castles built during Berengar's reign, and these were really good, like, strategic local defense centers that made it easy to set up sort of power strongholds locally. Mm. Um, in 945, Germany's Otto I conquered Italy, like, so easily he barely had to kill anyone. Right. Um, just, like, sweeps right on through. And medieval Italy sees Rome remain an intellectual hub with developments in literature and the visual arts. So then around 1060, um, Normans start moving in, eventually kind of booting the last of the Byzantines and sacking Rome in 1084. Rome goes through this a few times. There will be a couple of sackings yeah. um, that we will, we will get to. Um, so society at this point is mostly structured in a way that, like in that normal serfdom thing that we see in this era is very popular. For um, sure. With like more and more tenants paying rent to landlords in order to use their land for agriculture. Um, agriculture is like the main industry. It's huge um, and remains so for a long time, um, being kind of the main thing that people are doing. Um, do you know what's being grown in this era or was that information not I there as much? I don't know. It's going to come up later a little bit. Okay. But right now I couldn't tell you. No worries. Accurately. I'm, it, mostly people were eating the things that they were growing. Um, so Grains, variety, veggies. Yeah. Grains and veggies for the most part. There was like some livestock and stuff also. For sure. Um, yeah. But there is definitely an, an agricultural focus. Um, and there is a brief sort of early flirtation with slavery that doesn't stick around, um, replaced instead with this <laughs> this tenant-landlord structure. Oh, we'll try it on, see um, how it feels. They kind of did, though, and then they were like, mm, that's not for us. Um, and that's, that's good, <laughs> I, I suppose. Sort of. I don't think it was, like, exclusive. I yeah. think there are obviously, like, some versions of slavery. I hate people so much. Yeah. We're so bad. Why is it that every time it's like, I have an idea. Let's take away some people's rights. That seems smart. It's a very popular move. We're so good at it. Anyway, okay. <laughs> there are also, though, opposite to this, a number of sort of free peasant farmers. Um, you, you who who to... aren't sort of beholden to this yes. feudal system. Okay. Yes, they do exist. Um, you have to understand also that most landowners don't own like a big chunk of land. That's not the style. It's like a little bit here and a little bit there, interspersed with some other guys, little bits. Um, so it's a very scattered. Okay. The whole thing is scattered. The kingdoms are scattered. The landlords are scattered. It's all kind of all over the place. Um, the 12th century sees sort of communes and city-states emerging as the main method that society is kind of organizing themselves um, in northern and central Italy, mostly. Um, and these city-states start kind of eating weaker neighboring cities. Right. And this also is like a big movement that will also stick around for a long time to come. Italy's going to have a really hard time shaking the the city state. Yes, the city state nature of things. There's that's going to be around more or less until unification, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. yeah, for sure. A lot of the research I was doing, Britannica especially, would have like the different sort of major areas of Italy and like specific histories like drilled down for each one which obviously I'm not doing here but if you want to you can like you can research Sicily or you can research Milan or you can research like you can kind of go down into all of those yeah, things for separately. sure 
Um, so the German rulers still have a lot of power. And one Frederick the the first. Did I get this wrong? I don't think so. Frederick the first <laughs> Barbarossa of Hohenstaufen tries to amalgamate the city-states and get everyone under one jurisdiction. Right. Sorry, Frederick, for probably butchering that. Um, Sounded not too bad. (laughs) This is also a running theme. People will show up and be like, I have an idea. Let's unify everything, and then it won't work. Um, Well, we're still several centuries too early. yeah, Yeah. Yeah, but people keep trying. They keep being like, I had a good idea. Is so what that is, is yeah. there at this point some sort of concept? I get that it's, as we said, a very easy country to identify on a map. Mm-hmm. It's it's natural borders are quite easy to see. Yes. But is there some sort of concept in the world that all of these different city states and stuff constitute one thing? I think kind of. Kind of. I think there are. There's a regionalness to it. Yeah. There's a language kind of and a culture kind of. So there there are unifying traits to it. Yes. Like definitely northern Italy is a thing separate from southern Italy. Right. Which sort is of a up thing. by the mountains versus yeah. down by the ocean. Yeah. And I yeah. think at this point those are kind of vague concepts in everybody's mind. Yeah. But and certainly no southern Italy is... You know, the part of Italy that's very easy to identify on a map. Yes, so, yeah. for sure, for sure. And I think this, like, still exists today. We talk about North versus South Italy and the yes. pasta sauces and the cultural differences. <laughs> so um, it's it's been around a long time. Um, for Frederick, things don't go super great on his unification thing. Um, they signed... should have tried several centuries later. <laughs> They sign um, a peace agreement, but the fighting kind of goes on until basically the whole thing collapses in 1250. Guilds become popular in the 1200s, and these sort of vary in functionality kind of from town to town. Again, it's like very specific, depending on where you are. Um, Sometimes they have a role in local government, other places like Venice. um, Guilds have a more kind of religious slash charity focused outlook. Um, 1204 sees a failed crusade to Palestine, which instead just winds up trashing Constantinople. Constantinople? Yep. Is that how you say that? Yeah. I'm sorry. I learned this stuff in French, and sometimes I come across these words, and it's like, I don't know how to say that in English. Okay. You just have to listen to that It's Istanbul, not Constantinople song. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but it's also the kind of thing where, like, I think I know how to say it, and then it starts coming out of my mouth, and it's like... It's, it's a big old word. It is. Anyway, um... So the the crusade instead ends up trashing Constantinople and brings a bunch of art and other objects back to Venice. Um, I think that's funny that a crusade just like gets distracted. I don't know. I find that hilarious. Um, In the second decade or so of the 1200s, Dominicans and Franciscans get comfy and grow in popularity. They build churches designed for huge congregations. Um, I didn't really... Like, I knew this, but I didn't know this exactly. Franciscans were founded um, at around this time by St. Francis of Assisi um, and Dominicans by St. Dominic. 
Okay. Hence I've, why. I've definitely heard the name St. Francis of Assisi. Yes. That sounds very familiar. This is who he is. Cool. Father of the Franciscans. I, I suppose I should have made that connection at some point. You know what? It's okay. It's okay. The thing that jumped to my mind is that line in Romeo and Juliet where Romeo is meeting the friar and he says something like, oh, holy Franciscan friar, how are you? Like something right. like that. And I had no idea what that meant. And now I kind of do. So that's cool. Um, these are both offshoots of Christianity with Franciscans focused on kind of missionary duties and helping the poor and Dominicans like similar, but more about quote, like defending church teachings than helping out others. Right. Not entirely though. It's not completely one thing or the other. Uh, the 1200s also kick off a period of cathedral building with very innovative designs, sculptures, columns, all that good stuff. Italy has like a, I mean, a very long like architectural heyday, right? Um, which I think we're not even like really getting into yet. It's kind of coming down the road. Um, this is also part of what I got from that Met Museum page that right. was very invested in the, the details. <laughs> if you're looking for something fun to study, Italian architecture. All right. Um, so after everything kind of collapses in 1250, um, the papacy decides it would be a good idea for a French guy named of Charles of Anjou to come and conquer some of Italy and Sicily. Um, a bunch of lords kind of duke it out over the north and the central portions. And in the 1300s, there's a huge kind of cultural boost with the publication of Dante's uh, Divine Comedy, Petrarch's poetry, and some like incredible chapel art by yeah. um, Giotto di Bondone. Okay. Anywho, we also see at this time the rise of humanism, which allows art to be more secular and not about God all the time, mm -hmm. although it is obviously a lot of the time still about God. Um, like even to this day. Absolutely. There's, there's a shitload of religious art being made. Absolutely. And there's definitely an ongoing tension in Italy between like the church, capital C, and how much power they have and what they get to dictate. And other people are like, we're not really that interested. And then... They're kind of forced into it anyways, you know, the usual. Well, and certainly, like, even if you if you speak to, like, very religious people today, mm -hmm. they will not understand why you would make art for any other <laughs> yeah. reason but religiously. Yeah, like, it's, for sure. It's still a very real thing. Yes, but some people want to. Yeah, um, <laughs> believe it or not. Yeah. So overall, Italy is having a great time. The economy is booming and the arts and cultures are also booming and giving us some of those like undisputed classics of human existence. Mm -hmm. um, then there is a lot of plague in Sicily around 1350, which kills about half the population this time around. The plague is not done with us. However, it will be back. Um, and also the, the banks collapse just prior to the plague showing up in Florence around 1346. Combined, this kind of forms the end of a really good era and the start of kind of a rough patch. Sounds like a fucking <laughs> rough patch. Half the people died. <laughs> it's officially a rough patch. <laughs> so in 1309, the papacy is removed to France and people have obviously mixed feelings about this. Yeah, um, I had never heard about that before my neither Vatican had episode. I. I had Wild. no clue. Anyway, <laughs> here we are. Um, this causes a schism where they try to move the papacy back to Rome. The church splits and there are two competing popes then, um, these being Urban the Sixth, 
who's in Rome, and Clement VII um, in France. This yep. is eventually resolved in 1417 when Pope Martin V deposed the French guy, and everything goes back to being based in Rome. Right. Uh, in the 1400s, we see the rise of the very famous Medici family, who were very rich and basically just control Florence. Mm -hmm. um, this brings us to the beginning of the Italian Renaissance, a period of revitalization um, of buildings and monuments, as well as arts and culture. Generally, they put a lot of energy into making the architecture nice again. Yes. Um, time and effort goes into making that as good as it was. Well, this is the period where there's buildings that are going to take, like, decades on decades to build. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and keep in mind that um, Italy is still made up of city-states. We're not done with that yet. Um, and, like, little areas and is not really, like, unified in the way that we think of countries. Yeah. Yet. Um, still I, for, for a while. Yes, yeah. but I felt it bear, bore repeating. <laughs> Because um, I kept being confused about it and then being like, all right, because it's city-states. Anywho, we're getting there. Uh, in 1494, the French decide they aren't done with Italy yet. So Charles VIII yep, invades, um, which kicks off the Italian Wars, which, as one might imagine, involve Italy, France, and Spain, as France and Spain both try to take over Italian city-states. In 1515, French King Francis I captures Milan, only to be taken prisoner in 1525 by the Spanish. In 1527, Germany sacks Rome again, while Pope Clement VII um, hides, which is quite notable for him. I don't know. He's kind of famous for hiding while all this happens. Um, eventually, the Treaty of Cateau Cambrasis in 1559 cedes Naples and Sicily to Spain's Philip II. In this century, there are, like, many more internal wars between the city-states and also those who hold larger areas, such as Naples, um, and everyone's kind of trying to secure bigger chunks of land for themselves. Right. There's wars. Everyone's like, oh, my God, let's do some more wars. <laughs> <laughs> See what we can get out of this. Um, as I mentioned before, the city-states are kind of nice little bite-sized pieces that you can just swoop on in and grab a couple for yourself. Yeah. Um, also, the crossbow is invented, and this is a powerful new way to kill people at range, which makes all this war more effective than it was previously. Yeah. Um, That's like a major invention in terms of... Totally. Uh, ...battlefield weapons. They're like, slow, though, right? To reload is yeah. the, the problem, but like very powerful and obviously further range than your traditional bow and arrow. Yeah. Um, so everyone's having fun with that. Um, for us theater nerds, the first Commedia dell'arte performance is recorded in 1545. I thought that was cool. Yeah, I thought um, it was a little later than that, actually. Yeah, I, did, I hadn't really thought about it. Maybe it was just a longer-lived tradition than I thought. It goes on. Like, they still do Commedia. I know, but not today. really. I don't know. I saw one once. It was funny. <laughs> it's not the same, obviously. They do it for nerds. They don't do it. Yeah, well, I was at theater camp, so shut up. <laughs> And in 1597, the first kind of modern opera called Daphne is performed in Florence. In the early 1600s, there's a resurgence of plague with big cities like Milan, again, losing half their population, more or less. Um, additionally, there are wars in Northern Europe and the Middle East, which cause major disruptions in Italy's trade routes 
And to top it all off, because that's not enough bad stuff, they did too much of the same crop in the same soil. Yep. So now the soil's exhausted and the harvest was shit, which is also coupled with deforestation and erosion. Because we're quite a ways away from the invention of crop rotation. Didn't they figure that out really early? Did they? Maybe they did. Anyway, these guys didn't do it, <laughs> which they should have done. <laughs> Lesson learned. Um, I guess for Italian farmers. Um, and the the guilds, which we talked about earlier, are just like not super on board for a lot of technological change or innovation, which really holds back industry as right. a whole. Um because they're in charge of it. Yeah, people that like, no, we don't want to change it. We've always done it like this. We're not doing it different. And then it sucks a little bit. So this stagnation reinforces social hierarchy, essentially making rich people richer and increasing the number of illiterate peasants. Um, people on the land, or sorry, people with land, here's your thing about types of produce, um, are growing things like olives and producing silk and also grapes for wine. Cool. Um, Basically, the rich people own stuff and everyone else does the labor. Industry really stagnates. And I would like to now take um, a brief moment to discuss Italy and colonization, because this is really like the heyday of countries setting out to conquer other countries. But Italy's not really a country at this exactly. point. Exactly. So they're not doing... They don't really have the means. Like, maybe some of no. these city-states are rich, but I don't think they have the military means. The, I, they don't, and they couldn't organize. Even if they wanted to, like, team up, Yeah, they couldn't organize to do it. Um, so while like we, we were see... talking about last week with Rwanda, like, you team up with Party A, and yeah. Party B doesn't want to talk to you unless you <laughs> ditch Party A. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So they don't... They don't do that, and it means that while um, other like big colonizers like France and England and Spain and Portugal have these colonies, as you know we've seen and we will see again, Italy's not really doing that. There will be some stuff though, and we're gonna loop back later, I think, in part two. Yeah, um, to talk about. Well, certainly later Italy mm -hmm. did some shit where it comes to colonization, but during this heyday, yeah. it doesn't seem logistically possible no they did not do it they were quite late to the party in terms of europeans going around stealing other people's stuff um so spain also at this time goes through kind of a rough patch as it is the 30 years war um and they pull italy kind of down along with them because they raise a lot of money by taxing italians um it's really it's a shitty time yeah um in the early 1700s italy gets kind of cut up between Austria and the Habsburgs, um, the Spanish Bourbons, French Bourbons, um, Spain, and, like, independent states. I'm making it sound really simple, but it's not. You're not making um, it sound really simple, <laughs> if that's any consolation. There are so many players who are like, no, we want a piece. No, we want a piece. No, we want a bigger piece. And I'm not getting into the nitty-gritty of that part. Um, this is also further complicated by the Treaty of Hague and the War of Austrian Succession. Um, there were also some famines in the 1760s, which made economic recovery obviously hard and kind of exposed ways that the government wasn't looking after people. Right. As we saw in this pandemic. <laughs> For a fun modern day comparison. There's also growing tension between the aristocracy, a sort of like professional bourgeoisie and also like within the aristocracy itself. 
But as usual, this is a bit of a joke compared to average urban and rural working people who are finding it harder and harder just to live their lives. Yeah. This opens a climate for sort of like intellectual thought and philosophy. And we see the influence of some like huge names like Descartes and Isaac Newton and John Locke and Thomas Hobbes. People start to kind of embrace rationalism and like dig into science in a way that they didn't before. And this creates also tension between like modern scientific thinkers and those obviously always like clinging to older, more classical ways of thought and religion. Are we post now some of the like, you know, Galileo type like scientific martyr figures? Yeah, like I think that's happening Kind of right now or okay, just before. Okay, kind of contemporary. Okay. Yes, because we see the Enlightenment then hit Italy like hard. Um, and simultaneously in a lot of areas like Milan, Tuscany, Sicily, Naples, and other states too. Which really drives broad reforms in the way people look at the church and how they feel about how much power the church holds. Also pushing educational and political reforms and basically an overhaul of the justice system. Obviously on like little bits scattered here and there because nothing is happening for everybody. Yeah. I don't think at any point. Um, This is really true across Europe as we see the sort of post-French revolution demands um, change and challenge this kind of old-fashioned, outdated system, which obviously starts in France, but we're going to see some fun stuff in Italy too right about now. Um, The French, as we've seen, have a really strong influence on Italy and on the Italian mind, shall we say? Mindset, yeah. Yeah. Um, They've interacted a lot with the French and are going to continue to do so. Well, the French Revolution was just like shockwaves all throughout Totally, Europe, and they're so. like right next door. Exactly. They share yeah. a border, so it's not like it's a long way to go to be like, I mean, we should be doing that too. There's there's shockwaves throughout Europe, and there's being right beside the explosion. Yeah. 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 It's like your neighbor's burning down your, their house, and you're like, I didn't notice. Like, yes, you did. You did notice. Um, so Italians are very ready to adopt the ideas that kind of fuel the French Revolution. And are very keen on like reading the news and paying attention and being like, maybe we should do something like that here. But many of the traditional Italian governments are not on board for this. There are then a lot of protests and protesters who escape from Italy with their lives often go to France, where they kind of contribute to the conversation over there. Right. Working class people are very open to the idea of revolution, and they really thought they needed what France had and what France did to the nobles. Um, so they were not super thrilled about the lack of enthusiasm. Um, in 1796, our friend Napoleon invades, um, where Napoleon's army makes very short work of the Austrians in Milan and continues just to like sweep on through with the Pope ceding to them in 1797. Austria negotiates. They partition Vienna and they give the French power over some parts of Italy. Um, And then Italians have like a grand old time until 1799, where like in that time period, there's freedom and democracy, like all this great stuff they've been asking for. (laughs) And then there's a war in France with the Austrians and also the Russians in 1799, which obviously detracts a bit from what's going on in Italy, French the French get kind of pulled in multiple directions Mm -hmm. and I guess see 
the Austrian and Russian invasion as being more pressing than holding on to what they have. I think in France, Italy. like France, whenever we draw it, is mm. going to be a more important linchpin for a lot of stuff than I necessarily thought yeah. going in. It's true. They were like bold. Yeah. In the strokes. Not always successful. And they, but they never learned from their failures. They never learned. <laughs> <laughs> just like, we're going to try. And we're going to try again. Maybe and we're going to try again. And you know what? We're not done trying. We're going to try. So like, good for you, France, for keeping it up. It's great energy <laughs> <laughs> over many, many centuries. Um, I kind of hope I get France, although that's going to be like a four-part episode. Yeah, so. I'm going to laugh at you if you draw another two-parter next. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm tempted to fudge it and get an easier <laughs> one. But we don't do that here. So, um, all right. So some argue uh, that since Napoleon's takeover of Italy wasn't kind of a homegrown revolution, it couldn't really stick the same way that the revolution in France did. Um, the French, as we saw, start to lose their grip. Um, and then we see a peasant uprising in Naples. The members of the uprising are called the army of the holy faith and they wreak absolute freaking havoc on castles and aristocrats and they were hugely important to this very transformative moment in history um eventually the king who had well a king who had been exiled from italy comes back and then executes a bunch of the people who'd started the uprisings and supported them this sparks other peasant uprisings, which were at times resisted by the French, who still, like, hold some parts, but... Like, when you say a king... Yeah. Like, a king of one of these city-states? I'm... Okay, I'm not sure about this guy. Okay. This, this part was extremely confusing. Yeah, I think this no is... problem. This is maybe, like, a guy that Napoleon put in charge, mm, mm -hmm. and then he went away, and then he came back? Yep. I think, but, like... Don't quote me. I have probably here in brackets, which is always good to see your faith in yourself while you're writing your notes. <laughs> Carrying on. Um, okay, so the, the peasants are uprising. The, the French are resisting and still holding some parts of it Italy. The Italians at this point are like, what the fuck are you doing? You said you were going to help us. And now you're resisting our protests. That's not really cool. Um, Napoleon then, who's like really let things slide, does a coup in 1799 and brings the troops back to like retake some parts of Italy that had been lost. So now it's down to the French, the Austrians, the papal powers, and like some very weak Bourbons who are not really important. Um, Napoleon's dream is to unify Italy and then to rule it afterwards. He is elected president. That was kind of his dream for every country. Yeah, so. it was. It was. He just wanted the whole world. Um, he is elected president, like, somehow, and does a stupid thing by appointing his family and also Italian nobles to positions of power. Okay. Which is, don't do that after the revolution. That's, anyway. So, Napoleon's whole thing collapses around 1814. Prior to unification, the Congress of Vienna is established to kind of organize the political system of which there isn't one. Um, right. This is where they figure out what to do with all the shit that Napoleon yeah. no longer rules. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is not clean 
at no, all. It, it has takes... come up a number of oh. times and it always has disastrous results. This takes a long time. There is a lot of sorting out to do with regards of like what belongs to whom. And there's still like this vocal conservative movement and there's another famine. And it's not easy just like waking up one morning to make a country. Yeah. Um, so this goes on for a long time. In 1848, there is a revolution because most people want a more liberal constitution, which actually finally happens. Then there are other revolutions, which are put down in a number of cities like Vienna, Prague, and Paris. Um, the French somehow see fit to like get involved again because, as you say, they have not learned their lesson. <laughs> they never do. They never will. Um there is more war, and finally, at long last, the Kingdom of Italy is proclaimed on March 17th, 1861. That's all for now. We'll see you in part two with some more history and an anthem. Did we get something very wrong? Did we skip an entire part of the story that's worth mentioning? That's very likely, and we'd love to hear the correct version. Please tweet us at IAOUC podcast or send us an email at inallofuscommandpodcast at gmail.com. We record these episodes a bit in advance, so you may not hear a correction right away, but we're not too big to admit we are wrong and it will be corrected.